Hello ladies and gentlemen, I'm Judith Fallon-Reed and welcome to Shelf Life TV, where I have great conversations with Caribbean authors about their lives and books. If you have yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so. You'll always know when new episodes are available. The video of this episode is available also on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and check out my website at jfallonreed.com. Also, check out my other podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now it's time to share what's on my shelf. Welcome to Shelf Life. This week, I'm speaking with Helen Billy Elm Williams about her children's book, Lost in the Cockpit Country. Hi, Helen. So good to have you with me. You know, I this is this has been long overdue. You must admit, <laughs> long overdue for us to have a chat, and um, I can't wait to talk about the actual book. But before we talk about the actual book, tell tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, how I came to Jamaica, that perhaps the interesting thing is okay. that uh, I came to Jamaica on a banana boat. Really? 25 teachers on the banana boat coming to take up posts in Jamaica. And An came, actual banana boat? An actual banana boat. Of course, there weren't any bananas in it at going up in that direction. It had cars and other things, but it's going to pick up bananas to carry back to England. Oh, so, where in England are you from, originally? I was born, I was born in Hereford. I lived in on the west coast of Scotland for a couple of years, and then I was in, in High Wycombe, which is um, a dormitory town for London, really. Okay. That's so you, you actually came to Jamaica to take up a position as a teacher? Right, yes. In what area? Biology. Biology is my... Okay. my and you taught where? I taught at Rossi's. Oh. That was the, um, at that time, their rural schools were not so popular for Jamaican teachers, so they were mainly staffed by expatriates. Hmm. That's interesting, because I grew up in Mandeville in the 60s. Now I'm, now I'm dating myself, I know, but I grew up in Mandeville in the 60s, and we had a lot of expatriate teachers, um, and I never... I never gave it a second thought as to why. But now that you're saying that, it makes sense. The rural schools were not as attractive for the Jamaican teachers, so the expatriates came to the rural areas. That, that makes a lot of sense. So biology, how did you end up in writing? Oh, well, um, when I, I got married in 74, and then when I had my children, my two daughters, the schooling wasn't that I wasn't, satisfied with the schooling so I started my own school it was really like homeschooling my daughters and having other children along and I was wanting the children to read and I couldn't get the book any books I mean Sangsters in Montego Bay had you know Hardy Boys Nancy Drew mm -hmm. Enid Blyton books I said mm -hmm. well there, there aren't any books now here in my presumptuous self you know I think and I think everybody says this oh they're going to write a book and you might amount of people I, I need to say, oh, I'm writing a book. But, um, so that was kind of the spark. But then after that, um, we moved to Montego Bay and I was teaching at Montego Bay Community College. Okay. So that was, that was um, very much full time, but I was working on a book on and off and I was saying, well, <clears throat> let me see what happens. So after I retired, then I did a, a course in children's writing 
Okay. And um, I started and I was, my main aim was to write adventure books, particularly for boys, because boys aren't so keen on reading. I'm trying to, I hope that I've written something that they'll find interesting and want to read. And, and, and it's a good target too, because boys aren't targeted a lot with books because they're perceived as not wanting to read. What I, would, what I really wanted to do was write for emergent readers, older emergent readers, mm -hmm. because all the, the, um, the books for emergent readers are like um, little stories about teddy bears and that kind of thing, which um, older emergent readers don't want to read. Mm -hmm. So, um, but there's no market for that at all. So I was, I wrote, um, I wrote quite a few adventure stories for boys and um, then the, there was a, a appeal put out for fantasy. Mm. I had, after the, the course that we did, I was with a critique group. Um, with three of us, we're still, we're still meeting after these. It was 2004 I did that and we're still meeting. And we submitted work to each other and um, critiqued each other's work. Mm. We're doing more of now, what we're doing more of now is a book club. Okay. And, um, they, my critique partner said, yes, you can write fantasy, you know, have a go at it. So that is where I see, I see you have a frog behind you. <laughs> I love my frog. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Delroy in the Marab Kingdom, Delroy and the Marabs were, type of well they didn't call themselves they weren't frogs they would have been turned into frogs mm -hmm. and continued so Delroy was turned into a frog so this was that a fantasy story so the adventure stories got put one side but um I learned a great deal from writing Delroy and working with an editor mm -hmm. that was um I mean and the other thing too that I found after I started writing and they said, oh, you must be on Facebook and you must be on Twitter and so on. And there were other people saying, oh, no, you mustn't be on Facebook. All these terrible things are going to happen if you go on Facebook and so on. But what I found was that I made so many connections and I've made so many friends yes. because, because of the writing. Friends who are writers, people like Diane Brown. Mm -hmm. And that's how we connected or something to do with independent voices was the first time I think we connected, I connected with you. Um, and through your, your writer's name, Billy Elm. Yes. yes. Very interesting because, you know, some of us have pseudonyms. Uh, my children's book that is to come out is being written in a pseudonym, is being published in a pseudonym. But Billy Elm, explain that. Why Billy Elm? Well, they, I was finding, how do you choose a pen name? And I found this suggestion that you have your pet's first name and the street where you lived. <laughs> oh, pet's name. My first pet was a, a cat called Billy. And the street I lived on had a name, had a name. And I don't know why you're laughing because I won't tell you the rest of it <laughs> that I found out afterwards. Because it just sounds, it's, it's, you know, I was expecting something really profound, I must tell you. <laughs> I was anticipating some very profound thing about some writer that you knew, who you used to read, whose name was Billy, and, you know, that, that's, um, that, that's funny, <laughs> that's very funny.
how you choose a pen name. And, I like that. Well, and um, I looked at, you know, when I, when I had chosen that, I, I went on the internet to find out, you know, if this was anybody's name, to find out how common it was, and it wasn't common at all. I mean, Helen Williams, if you go on, there are at least 2,000 of us. My name, which last name is Fallon Reed, is um, my, my previous name, but I kept it because my maiden name is common. My current married name is also very common. And, but if you go and you search for Fallon Reed, um, chances are you're going <laughs> to find me and the ex-husband, you know? You're not gonna <laughs> So it, I kept it. So name, name is very important to a writer. And Billy Elm, uh, for one, when you, when you first see it, you're not sure if it's a man or a woman, you know, right. and it's kind of cool because for boys writing, especially adventure stories for boys, the boys kind of feel like there's a man writing in their own language. Yes, right. So that's that is right. another of the reasons it's kind of deceptive, but then the whole... The whole story, I mean, the whole story is a lie if you want to look at it like that. <laughs> but let's get back to you and your book. So we're talking about this really, really great book that just really had me enraptured because it's all about being lost in the cockpit country. So, you know, for a lot of us, we hear about the cockpit country. We have maybe driven through parts of it and not even realized. But this story actually takes place deep in the cockpit country. And I've been into some of the interior areas of the cockpit country. And I've been privileged to be in going to some of those inner areas and see some of the caves and stuff like that back in the day, in a former lifetime. When you were writing this, how much research did you do in terms of you physically going to the cockpit country? Because your, your story is very vivid. Your descriptions are very vivid. I mean, I can see everything that your protagonist is seeing, everything the little boy is seeing, I can see. And so I really wondered when I was reading it, how much of it is from personal experience and how much of it is just from book research? Well, I had one, one visit to the cockpit country before I was writing it. And then after I had written it and, and was making changes, I've had another visit to the cockpit country. I'd also been to the, um, like the edge of the cockpit country, Stuart Town. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, I would say I've had three or four visits to the cockpit country. And I also went to Akampong. Mm -hmm. so, but just to the, um, the town of Akampong, mm -hmm. I didn't go. I saw the, I saw the, the kinder tree. Ah, oh, did you, did you pour libation under the kinder tree? Did you walk with your white rum? No, no. <laughs> because we made sure we walked with our white rum and we made sure to bless the spirits under the kinder tree with the spirits under the kinder tree. <laughs> but yes, Akampong was quite an interesting, interesting trip. So you actually did do a lot of personal. Um, yes. What, what, when we went to Akampong, we went to the community center mm -hmm. and they had a a short um, video that they showed. Mm -hmm. And to my great surprise, there was one of my neighbors mm. on this video. So um, this is Mrs. Corley. Okay. And 
And um, she had, well, long, long ago left Akampong because she had gone to England and done nursing, I think. And then she was in charge of the Blossom Gardens Children's Home. Oh, in Montego she lives, she lives just across the street from us. And um, her, her, when, when I, I went to see her and got a wealth of information from her about the maroons and about how, and how life used to be and how it is now. Okay, how, how so a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of really good research because as I said, the, the details in the book, the details, um, you know, and I gotta tell everybody that I, be, as I say, I've been to the cockpit country a couple of times. I've been fortunate enough, I used to work for the Jamaica Tourist Board to be able to actually go deep into the cockpit country. And um, it's just such a marvelous place. And it's funny that when you speak to people who are not, who are not um, environmentalists or, or even just environmentally conscious, and you explain why you shouldn't be mining in the cockpit country and why you shouldn't be doing all these things in the cockpit country. Uh, you know, they carry on like, well, you know, so what? It's some snake that we don't, you know, we don't have any use for and, you know, a couple of mongoose and, but the cockpit country is such a rich, such a diverse area. And in your book, you talk about one of the, and I'm not giving it away, but one of the characters in the book was actually stealing endemic species from the cockpit country and selling them. How much of an environmentalist are you? I mean, is this just part of the story or is this something that you're passionate about? Oh yes, I'm very much an environmentalist, yes. yes um, well, as I say, I'm a I was a biology teacher for all those years. But, uh, but I mean, one of the main reasons why why we shouldn't um, damage the cockpit country is because of water supply. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a everybody's need and um, just a, a practical thing, nothing to do with saving endangered species or anything like that. You know, people feel they, if people feel that those don't matter, but they certainly must be concerned about their own water supply. Yeah, which is, which is where a lot of our water supply comes from. Um, that whole area. And I loved when you described how he went up on the hill and was able to look across at the hills and the valleys. Um, if you've ever flown across the island from Montego Bay to Kinston, uh, in particular, if you're flying from like Cayman into Kinston, you fly directly over that. And it's the most beautiful sight from the air to see that to be able to see that. So your characters, uh, how did you develop your characters in this book? Because you've got these three little, these three brothers who have gone on this overnight camping trip, school trip into the cockpit country. Uh, tell me about how you came up with these three, three young men. Were they mirrors of somebody you know? Oh, well, I would say from students, you know, I've met, I've met so many. I've been, you know, with with different students. Mm -hmm. So no, there was no particular role model for them. Okay. And uh, the two primary characters, Kimar and O'Shane. In fact, when I first started writing them, they weren't that wasn't their names. Their names were changed afterwards. So, yeah. but they were. You know, and this is where this is where I just was imagining really 
in the farming family. Right. And um, in fact, um, another book that I'd written, which I have not had published, I was told about this event from a teacher who lived up in that area and had did potato farming about how the potato crop was stolen you know, like the day before that they were going to go out the next day and reap the potatoes and when they got up in the morning they'd all gone and that was a that was an actual thing that happened so that was what I based that story of the the whole the whole stealing of the goats the the well the goats that no that came afterwards you know I had to have a I had to find a reason why he would have been there. Okay. So that, you know, some of these things become necessary after not they're not the initial thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. And your car your character who actually um I, I don't want to give away the story because I think the story is something that children should read. And I, I would encourage everybody in the diaspora, especially. Um, yes, in Jamaica as well, but people in the diaspora who, if you want your grandchildren or your children to really get a feel for Jamaica, not just the tourist side, not just the beaches and, you know, all of that, but to really feel our country, really feel our island, then this is one of the books that they should read because it takes them into the interior, the areas that very few people really ever write about, you know, or very few people ever talk about. We, we have a lot of books about the struggle. We have a lot of books about, you know, the North Coast, but not much about this kind of interior living. Um, and so the, the father of the boys was an interesting character. And who he, he, he turned out to be very protective. And it was lovely to see a story in which the father played a more dominant role. You know, a lot of times it's a mother who is playing the dominant role so many children's stories about orphans if you if you look into it you'll find that um, they're orphans and you, you really as a writer you know you put your children into the most terrible situation mm -hmm. so a lot of them start off as being orphans and a lot of them start off being one so I said well you know why not a family mm -hmm. but of course that that's not exciting that's not interesting <laughs> It's um, normal. That's a, well, perhaps not, perhaps not quite normal for Jamaica, but um, that's what's the that's a desirable situation. So uh, don't don't let's write about that. So I that was kind of going against the, the norm with, with that having them as a two parent family with well, they had a lot more children in my original um, thought about them, but. Um, Yes, but the father being the, being the strong character, being the uh, character in charge of that family, being like the single parent father kind of thing, you know, is such so much not the norm. We always read about the mother, the mother, the mother, and the fathers are a lot of times absent or, you know, they pop in for a spell. But it was good to read a book in which it was about boys and the strong role models that they had, you know, their teachers who went camping with them. And in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a book about friendship. It's a book about friendship between siblings. Yes, yes, very much so. Because O'Shane did not buy into the whole idea that his brother was not in trouble. 
he knew his brother was in trouble. And so he went against the grain. And that's something that I think we, we need to be teaching our children again, you know, the be my brother's keeper kind of uh, message, which I think comes out really strongly in that book. Don't you think they are? I, I find that you hear a lot of people, it's very, they're very close to their siblings. Uh, well, I don't know, because I know there are a lot that are, but when you read some of the stories that come out in the papers and come out in the press, and um, just what people do to their siblings, you know, it really makes you wonder sometimes. Do they start out that way? And then over time, you know, other things get in the way. I don't know. But it's nice to have that story and uh, for our young people to be able to read a story in which the brothers were taking care of each other. I know I was the youngest girl and I was foisted on my sisters all the time. <laughs> you know, like um, Tyreek was on his brothers. The youngest one was, was, you know, made to go with his brothers. His brothers didn't want him to come. And my sisters had to deal with that all the time. You talked about a book that um, you have not yet published. I had written four about these two, two brothers. Okay. And um, I'd written one that, well, it started off, its first name was more than a game of cricket. So involved, it was the, the two brothers went to stay with an aunt in Lucy. And the aunt was... Um, very afraid of duppies, and so that was a big thing in the, in the story. And the the um, in the, the Kamar would also been influenced by her and being afraid of duppies. And then there was a secret tunnel. Uh, there is really a secret tunnel near Lucy Parish Church. Okay. So the boys had investigated that and found <coughs> they found some people digging there, and so they were investigating this what was happening. And they were also playing cricket. Okay. They had a, they were. And the same two boys from yeah. this story. Yes, yes, oh. yes. So uh, is that going to be coming out at any point? Or well, I don't, I don't know because I had entered that one also for the, for the Gene DeCostro Award. Mm -hmm. And um, Jean herself spoke to me afterwards and she said, she said it might be better if they were um, separate stories. So that's a possibility that it could be lit up. And what I, my experience with trying to get boys to read is that, you know, first of all, they look and see how long the book is. Yeah. And then, so maybe if I wrote some shorter stories, maybe they would look and think, well, maybe this would be digestible enough. The other thing boys look for are pictures. Yes, yes. Well, that's a... That's a difficult thing because it makes a book so much more expensive when you have illustrations. Well, e even if it's not in color, even if it's black and white, boys definitely look for pictures. Um, yes. My experience yes. is that if there are pictures in the book, they're, they're more likely to read it. Yes. You know, yes. They will go after comics before they go after books. Oh, yes. yes. Graphic books. Yes. <laughs> but... They, they, I mean, I have friends who have grandsons who read and um, other younger, younger friends who have boys who read and who enjoy reading. I can't say they're in the majority. I must be, must be honest, 
but they do enjoy reading. And I think that if we, if we can get stories like these into our schools, I just uh, spoke to somebody else about the same thing. If we can get stories like these into our schools where there are fun stories, there are stories, they are stories that we can relate to. And so, and one of the, and, and, and have stories that match the audience. So for example, this book would be a great book in a boys school, you know, a school. So it's a literature book that boys would have to read. Now I'm not, I'm not sexist or genderist in any way, shape or form, but I'm just picking up from your desire to have more boys reading. Yes, yes. You know, um, uh, because as a girl, I, I love adventure stories. You know, I was- well, that's what they, they do say that girls will read boys books. Yes. But boys will not read girl books. Girls and boys are not going to read books about princesses and, um, <laughs> and ponies and those. But the girls will read adventure stories that the boys yeah. like. True, true. I was never really much into the princesses and the ponies and stuff. I always was, I'm, a, I'm an adventure person. And so I was always more into things about, you know, cars and sports and any kind of adventure thing, anything where somebody was gonna, you know. Well, the, 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 Roald, the Roald Dahl books are very much, yes. you know, yes. books boys will, will read. Yes, definitely. But definitely. What, what, I, what I find the other problem is that they're not really encouraged to read, even at school. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have this overloaded curriculum in the primary schools. Mm -hmm. No time set aside for reading. I think they have this thing, drop everything and read, which is a session of about five minutes. <laughs> Not much you can read in five minutes. Exactly. Not so um, they're, not, they're not really given the supply. The books aren't there either in the schools. Yeah. What they need is class libraries. Instead of them all traipsing off to the library, and most schools do not have an, a full-time librarian. Yeah, no, or they're not anymore. Certainly, certainly not a qualified librarian. You might have somebody, <clears throat> like somebody who's on National Youth Service or something like that. But they really need to have lots of reading books in every classroom and lots of reading books at different levels. So yeah. some very, even for a grade four, I mean, because I have helped with, with at a primary school with the reading, and I've had a, <clears throat> children from grade two completely cannot read at all. And then going up, children are not reading at their grade level. Right. So a grade four class, and they, they, um, they were reading at like grade one or grade two level. Hmm. So you need books that they would like yes. in their classroom. I think like from grade one, they need to have time for reading or maybe, you know, with, it, with some of the children finish the work before the others, let them go and read. Yeah, let I, I like that idea. Free up the teacher to help the children who can't read. I like make, the idea of the class library. And make it something that, make it something fun and enjoyable. I mean, to me, reading is great, greatly enjoyable. It's something that you're forced to do, so you don't want to do it. Right. I, I liked reading. I mean, I was probably the only person in my whole class who liked Silas Marner. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really loved Silas Marner when everybody else was, was trudging through it and, 
crying through it and going, oh my God, do I have to read this boring book? I just was like, I was all in. Um, but I think that's not the norm <laughs> because no. people, like you say, you know, when you're forced to read, it's mm -hmm. different from if you read for pleasure. And I think the whole thing is we have to find a way to get our young people to read for pleasure. We have to stay in the fight and keep producing great books like, like this one, which um, as I said, Lost in the Cockpit Country, ladies and gentlemen, it's one of those books that you need to get for your young people. Uh, it's great for that. It's, it's like a tween book, you know, that sweet spot in between a little too young and a little too old. And it's a great teaching book, you know, teaching kids how to work together, how to be each other's brother's keeper, how to love the environment, how to take care of what is around you, how to be aware of what is around you, you know? And so I wanna say thank you so much, Helen, uh, or by your pen name, Billy, um, for, for this great book. And I look forward to whatever else is coming down the pike, uh, whatever else is gonna be next. I'm looking forward to that. And I wanna say thank you for stopping by Shelf Life. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to have you. Great pleasure talking to you. You too. And have a wonderful day. And remember, stay safe. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so. The video of this interview is available on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Visit my website at jfallonreed.com and you can download your copy of my free audiobook, Time and Seasons. And remember to subscribe to my other podcast, Exchanging Pain for Praise.